Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time, women drink a lot more than they did before they joined the workplace en masse. And sometimes the stress of work can help turn a habit into a problem. You know, it's very easy for us to creep into imposter syndrome as young professionals I don't know why they hired me. I'm going to get fired. All of those things. And drinking can shut that voice out. And you might assume the pandemic had made things worse for anyone struggling with an addiction to alcohol. But that's not universally true. Women take this opportunity of isolation, lockdown, and actually use it to their advantage on their recovery journey. So they are saying things like, wow, you know, I'm not drinking because I'm not being put in social situations where I'm feeling pressured to drink. Women, alcohol and work. Coming up on The Broad Experience. Britain is a boozy culture. And one of the things I remember from my first ever job is how much socialising was a part of office life. And socialising always meant going out for drinks. This was in the city of London, so the financial centre. It was in the early 90s, shortly after I'd left university. I loved my colleagues. I loved being out of the British education system, in the workforce, earning money, having fun. But my abiding memory of that time, and this was a job in insurance, I don't remember a lot about insurance, but I do remember learning how to hold my alcohol at lunchtime. We would go to the pub at lunchtime on a Friday and spend at least two hours there drinking lots of wine, like not a glass or two, but several, several glasses. And then we'd come back for a sleepy hour or two of work before going home. Today, depending on where you work, drinking can still be a big part of the culture. Women now share in what was formerly a man's world, the workplace, but our bodies don't deal as well with alcohol, yet we often feel pressure to join in and keep up. Lisa Smith was in her 20s and working as a lawyer at one of the big corporate law firms in New York City when her extremely social drinking became something else. That is actually when I became a nightly drinker, when I was in my first year of practice, living in Manhattan alone for the first time. Lisa says she'd always drunk a lot as a young adult. She was a big partier in college. But looking back, she sees the seeds of her drinking were planted in childhood. I grew up in the 70s. My parents had happy hour every night. My dad got home. Like My mom would pull out the you know, J&B scotch and the Triscuits and put it all out. My dad would change his clothes and they would drink to good health. And 
you know, for a kid who was really anxious and fearful, like myself, like there was a, a lot of safety in that, that I saw growing up. That was, we're all together. They would drink to your health each night, but it became my favorite time of the day. It wasn't until much later, after she finally sought treatment for alcoholism, that she was diagnosed with serious depression and anxiety. But she already had those underlying issues when she began her job at a prestigious firm. And like so many law associates before and after, she found it grueling. I might not get my assignment turned around from the more senior lawyer or hear what was going on, what I needed to get done that day until noon, maybe. Sometimes it was four o'clock in the afternoon and then the day would start. And when the work came in, it had to get done. So there were all nighters all the time. And a lot of it as a junior lawyer, you know, it is really, it's the grunt work. You're not doing sophisticated, exciting legal work. You're really learning. I mean, the best way I learned how to be a lawyer was by watching the lawyers around me and sitting in meetings and listening. But the things that I was responsible for were incredibly detailed. And, you know, so the fear of making a mistake on something was incredible. So it's a scary time. It's a stressful time. And um, it's exhausting. On a good night, she'd get out of the office at around 7pm. Other nights, it was more like 9pm, 11, or later. So she'd go home on those nights, stand in front of her fridge and her underwear, and pick a beer or wine or whatever she had in there. She'd have a glass or two in an attempt to wind down. Trying to find out a way to, for one go from 60 to zero and get to sleep at the end of the day, but also to just shut my brain off. You know, all that stress of the day, all that thinking about all these things and and being in this intense place all the time, I just wanted to turn it off. You know, it's very easy for us to sort of creep into imposter syndrome as young professionals. You know, there's a lot of kind of I don't want to say fear, but there's a lot of apprehension that, oh my gosh, am I not doing, you know, a good job? I don't know why they hired me. I'm going to get fired. All of those things. And drinking can shut that voice out. Meanwhile, she says the legal profession normalized heavy drinking. Every client victory was celebrated with drinks. Many nights after work ended at the bar. And Lisa just saw it as blowing off steam, which she very much needed to do. But when she was home alone, it was different. She was drinking more and more. I would say, you know, I really shouldn't be having that third glass. And, you know, that's not the cocktail hour that my parents had anymore. That's really drinking. And then it would be a bottle. That's when I sort of crossed into, I need to drink because it's the only way I can cope with this job, cope with my life overall. And it creeped from... From that sort of couple of drinks to three to a bottle to then I'd start waking up in the morning and thinking, oh my gosh, did I open a second bottle last night? And I usually had. And at a certain point, I just got used to having that feeling, that hungover kind of, I I operated that way. And she says no one at work knew. She operated fine at the office. This was all going on in her 20s into her 30s, and she knew it was getting out of control. So one morning I woke up and thought, okay, I, this has got to end, and I, can't, I am not buying a bottle of wine and I am not drinking 
And if I go to the wine store tonight, if I buy a bottle of wine, then I'm an alcoholic. Then I have an addiction to alcohol. And I remember that night standing in the wine store, picking out a bottle of wine. And I used to go to different wine stores in my neighborhood. I lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan because I didn't, you know, God forbid the, uh, the, the, the people who own the liquor store thought I came in there every night. And uh, I remember that when I picked up that bottle of wine, I remember just thinking, okay, this is it. I guess I am an alcoholic and that's okay. That's going to be okay because I'm a quote unquote high functioning alcoholic. She says every time she entered a new stage, she had a justification for it. Drinking at lunchtime with workmates? Did the French drink wine at lunch? Americans were so uptight about this stuff. She made peace with what she knew in her heart was a bad situation. At around 30 years old, she says she stopped contributing to her work retirement account because she told herself, what's the point? I won't live to be 40. I drink too much. This slide of Lisa's went on for about 12 years. Now, during that time, she switched jobs. She stopped practicing law and went over to the administrative side of the business. She was married for a while and moved out of state. But when the marriage ended, she came back to New York. This was just after 9-11, which was a terrible time for the city. And for Lisa. She was drinking in the morning by this time. And she says she soon added cocaine into the mix to offset the effects of the alcohol and be able to function during the day. If you saw me when I sort of came to at like seven in the morning, you would look at me and go, that woman is sick. There's something really wrong with her. You know, I'd be throwing up. I'd be it was a mess. And then if you saw me two hours later, once I got calibrated with cocaine and alcohol together and got that like sort of crazy balance going, then you would think like, oh, hi, there's Lisa. And I would sit in meetings like that at 830 in the morning with a room full of partners. Was there one particular incident that spurred you to get help? Yeah. You know, I wake up in the morning and wish I hadn't woken up. I would just like roll my eyes and be like, oh, not again. But then one morning, it was a Monday morning, I had gotten all calibrated and I had to go into work. So I was in, you know, my work stuff. I had my makeup on. I had my laptop, my New York Times heading to the elevator to go to work. And I became like overcome with this physical sensation And I thought, oh, my God, I'm having a heart attack. Or, oh, my God, I finally overdosed. I now know that it was a panic attack. But somehow, for some reason, in that moment where I really thought, like, okay, I am going to die now, like something snapped in me. And I said, wait, wait, I don't want to die right now. I don't want to die right here in the hallway. And I knew the only thing I could do was get help. So she turns around, goes back to her apartment and calls her doctor. And she tells them she needs to go into detox. And she knew she'd need a medicated detox in a hospital. So she's really organized. She gets that set up. And then after that, it wasn't her family she called or her friends. The first thing I did was open my laptop and email my office and say, listen, I had a medical emergency over the weekend. Please don't worry about me. All is fine. But I am in the hospital, so I'm going to be out of touch but I'll see you next Monday and please don't worry, all is fine. Because while I would come clean to anybody in my life, I was not coming clean at work. Uh, I was afraid of the stigma. I was afraid that I had left on the Friday before considered 
you know, a reliable, capable, smart member of the team. And that if somehow they found out, which I assumed they would, what was wrong, I would be never be considered the same again. I would be seen as, you know, maybe weak, deficient, certainly not reliable, possibly amoral. I just wasn't willing to take that chance. That's very telling that work was the first person or, you know, entity that you contacted, but you didn't let on. Yeah. And I'm, I know now, you know, I really was far from alone in that. There was a big study done by um, Hazel and Betty Ford and the American Bar Association. And the numbers are super high for lawyers with alcohol use disorder. And when the survey asked, why don't you seek help? Um, then there were two answers, like far and above the rest. One was, I'm afraid of what you know my colleagues will find out and think less of me. And second was, I know you're telling me that there are these free and confidential resources out there, but I don't believe that. I think my privacy is going to be violated. And then I'm back to number one. So it's all stigma. So when I talk about the fact that stigma kills, it's true. Stigma is keeping people from getting help. Not everybody by far is as fortunate as I have been in in getting help and getting better. Lisa was at that firm for another year or so, and she never told them what happened. They never knew she'd been an addict or was in recovery. And when she went somewhere else, she only told that employer just before her memoir came out, 10 years into her time there. She says they were wonderful. But that fear of crashing her career, it hovered over her for more than a decade. Today, Lisa lives in California with her husband. She's the author of the book, Girl Walks Out of a Bar. She left her last law firm a few years ago to concentrate full-time on speaking to law schools and law firms about addiction, support and recovery, and how to create work cultures that don't rely so much on alcohol. I'm going to talk to her again about alcohol and workplace culture a bit later in the show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So Lisa went through her hell long before the pandemic. But we know that alcohol sales are significantly up this last year. And we know from a recent study that women, mothers in particular, are drinking more. Dawn Nickel is co-founder of the She Recovers Foundation. She started it with her daughter 10 years ago. It provides support to women in recovery from a lot of different things, although Dawn says around 80% have struggled with substance use. Dawn's based in Victoria, British Columbia. We spoke by phone. I asked her first, do women face different issues from men in coming forward and saying, I have something I need to recover from? Is it different for women? 
incredibly so, and you know there's really one one main reason for that, and that is the stigma associated with mental health or um, substance use disorders. Right? I mean, if I'm a, especially if I'm a mother, if I'm a mother, who am I going to tell that I have a substance use problem and not be afraid that someone's going to come and take my children? Um, if I have a mental health disorder, who am I going to tell and not be afraid that my boss is going to find out? Whereas, you know, it, it, it is different for men. It just simply is. And with regard to substance use disorders, although substance use disorder affects more men than women, women have much more negative experiences with substance use disorders. So, you know, for, for physiological reasons as well as um, the stigma and other reasons. So it, uh, it disproportionately affects women negatively. It's interesting. I mean, it can't be that great for men either to sort of have to tell a supervisor that they have an issue and that they might be going into rehab or whatever. But do you think it's partly worse for women? Because, you know, we have this expectation to, quote unquote, behave ourselves. Absolutely. It's a whole gender role thing, right? I mean, we're supposed to be good women, good mothers, good wives. So uh, we're demonized, I think, when we have these issues. And, and for men, I guess I just, you know, think about the idea of if there's a the husband in a family or, or the male partner is needing recovery, then he, off he goes to treatment while the wife or female partner or the other partner stays home. You know, in gay couples, it may, it'll be different, but men can go off to treatment if there's somebody who stays home to take care of the kids. She says with women, it is still different. Being the primary caregiver does hamper many women from getting treatment. Women seek treatment and support at lower numbers than men do. Now, my theory about life in the pandemic had been that if you already had a problem with alcohol, it was bound to get worse with all the pressures of the last year. And Dawn says for some women in the She Recovers community, that's true. The pandemic and all of the things that kind of come along with it, uh, whether it's worries about your job or your partner's job or worries about your parents who you can't visit because they're in a care home or if it's, you know, your children who you're now expected to take care of and you don't know how to homeschool. For some women, you know, a portion of women in our community, it was the last straw. It was like this was it. And some of them returned to drinking or increased the amount that they were drinking and they're off now you know they're kind of off doing their thing so that's been hard to watch but for others she says this crazy year has had the opposite effect the other side of the spectrum which has been such a beautiful surprise actually for me to witness is watching women take this opportunity of isolation lockdown slow down and actually use it to their advantage on their recovery journey so they are saying things like, wow, you know, I'm not drinking because I'm not being put in social situations where I'm feeling pressured to drink. They're not meeting up with friends for dinners out. And Dawn says, crucially, most of them are not going into work. So there's no after-work socialising pulling them in. These women have been able to use the time at home to the benefit of their health. Dawn says there's another thing she's noticed about her community of women in recovery these past months. I think there's a pretty high percentage of women who are who have really taken this opportunity to reflect on whether they're in the right work or not. You know, it's like we're kind of faced 
facing death this last year, right? We're seeing so much of it. We're learning and hearing so much about it that um, I'm one of them, right? In, in just kind of thinking, okay, like just in case, just in case my time is more limited than it might be, you know, a year or so ago. Um, am I in the right work right now? Am I doing the right thing? And I just think that, again, for the women who have the privilege of having the space, mental space and emotional space to explore what this time has meant for them, I do see a lot of rethinking. As I said earlier, my first job was in an office where heavy drinking was a given. My second job wasn't much different. And when I got to New York and worked in advertising, it was similar. A testosterone-filled workplace where drinking with your colleagues after work was just being a good team player. It was about fitting in. The only difference was in New York, no one slunk in late and obviously hung over after a night out. Lisa Smith says in the legal world, drinking and career progression have been aligned for ages. You know, I started working in New York in 1991 and total old boys club. It was a bonding thing with the team. You know, I might be sitting at my desk at eight o'clock at night and a partner on a deal would come by and say, hey, a bunch of us are going to go to the bar. You want to come? And I would say, yeah, I want to come because... One, I wanted to drink. And two, you know, I wanted to be part of that scene and part of that culture. And I was one of the few women who was. And I have to say, I do think that the fact that I was one of the women who could go to the bar and talk about sports and all of those kinds of things, I think that was part of why I was well-liked in my job. She's pretty sure she got career opportunities she wouldn't have if she'd stayed at her desk or gone home instead of going out. And she says other women lawyers still face this dilemma. We tend to want to please everybody. When the partner knocks on the door at eight o'clock at night and says, do you want to go to the bar? That people pleasing idea of trying to make everybody happy can be a bit of a conflict. I think for women more than men, as I've seen it happen, I do think that this next generation coming up is a lot more able to find their sort of footing on that. I have seen now for the first time junior lawyers who have said when they've been approached to go out to the bar at the end of the night and they'll say, no thanks, I've got a I've got a yoga class or no thanks, I've got plans tonight. Today in her work, she talks to law firms about their cultures and how they should focus less on alcohol as a social glue. And she says this idea wasn't getting that much traction until a few years ago. And then the Me Too movement hit. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk about it because the firms had put together the fact that most times you are dealing, you know, with something with a Me Too incident gets reported or or there is some, some inappropriate activity. Invariably, there's alcohol involved. I spoke to one firm and this is right after Me Too. And the managing partner said to me, he's like, you know, we are taking on this drinking issue all the time. And we told everybody, when you go out for drinks, the firm is not paying for shots anymore. No more shots. (laughs) And I was like, well, it's a start, I guess. At the last law firm where Lisa worked, they had a 100th birthday party, invited all their clients. It was held in a fancy venue in Manhattan. 
And normally the firm would have had a lot of alcoholic drinks waiting for guests to pick up on the way into the venue, including a signature cocktail. And they still had those drinks and water on offer, but Lisa says this time they also included a signature mocktail, a virgin mojito, that guests could pick up on their way in. There were so many people that did that. And I had a client say to me, I'm so glad you did this. This was such a great idea. You know, I felt like I had to come tonight to celebrate, but I have to get on the train and go home and do math with my kid. It's Tuesday night. I wasn't going to drink. And I would never advocate for removing alcohol from the workplace. But what I would, what I do advocate for is understanding that it's not the only thing and that if we are going to not make it so that the person who goes out to the bar the latest gets the best bonding experience and opportunities, we have to be conscious. And I do think the pandemic gives a lot of workplaces a real opportunity to reset and rethink alcohol coming back, right? What used to always be doesn't have to be the same anymore. Maybe it won't be. And as Lisa said a little earlier, she sees young women having a really positive effect on the workplace. In her work in support of lawyers in recovery, she's noticed them speaking up, talking to management about things she'd never have dared to in her day, really taking on office culture. Women are starting to become more vocal about what that means for not just drinking, not just saying, you know, we really need to de-emphasize here, we really should be doing something else, or I don't want to participate in that, but saying what they think all around about what the workplace should be like. We've always just kind of conformed to the male workplace. And I think that we're seeing more and more of women being willing to speak up to try to help better their workplace. And I think that redounds to the benefit of women, but also to men. There are a lot of men out there who, you know, have no interest in going to the bar just as much. Lisa Smith is the author of Girl Walks Out of a Bar. Thanks to her and to Dawn Nickel of She Recovers for being my guests on this show. I will link you to more information about Dawn and Lisa under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. And just one more thing about this topic before we go. Lisa and I talked a bit about this. It's something we've both noticed a lot here in the U.S., And that is the way that drinking is clearly marketed directly to women as a lifestyle. There are those glasses you can get saying mommy juice or wine o'clock. There are yoga and wine sessions, art and wine. Lisa once saw crates of wine at the supermarket stacked right next to the back to school supplies. All these things are very targeted to tell women look, it's okay. And it's even feminine. It's even something that is special for the women. It's not you just tagging along with the guys. It's your own thing. If you think this episode could be helpful to somebody else, please share it with them. This show really has traveled by word of mouth. And thanks to all of you who have told your friends and colleagues about it. That's the broad experience for this time. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 